all of it pretty much got wiped out. Combination of weather, so hailstorms, currency, but basically all the off-tick agreements that we had. Guns had an environmental lobby problem and their factory never made it. So that collapsed. So basically all three investments had some issue or the other, and all three basically went down to zero. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Hansi Merotra. Hansi, are you ready to rock? I am. Thank you very much for inviting me, Andrew. Yes. Well, we're excited to hear your story. I'm going to tell the audience a little bit about your background. So Hansi runs a financial literacy investor education blog called The Money Hans. She was named to LinkedIn's inaugural global 10 top voices for money and finance. More recently, she was included in the LinkedIn power profile for finance and top voice in India in 2018. Her LinkedIn profile has more than Oh my goodness, 289,000 followers. Hansi has over 20 years of financial service industry experience, mostly in online delivery of investment research and consulting for the wealth management industry across Asia Pacific. She set up and led Asia Pacific Wealth Management Business for Mercer's Investment Consulting Division based in Australia and Singapore. She led a number of projects in India, including design of the investment options for the new pension system. She holds a bachelor's of arts degree from Delhi University, a graduate diploma of applied finance and investments from Australia. And she, like myself, is a chartered financial analyst from CFA Institute. Hansi, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Okay, so, so a couple of things that should be clear from that profile. One, that I did my university in, in Delhi. I actually didn't go to university. I come from a very, very small town in India. It's a very small town, literally. Most Indians don't know where it is. It's in UP. For my undergrad, I wanted to get a degree from Delhi University, so I had to go up and down every weekend, and eventually I moved to Delhi, but I couldn't get admission, and I actually didn't have money either. I finished my degree by correspondence, so my highest classroom is actually a year 12 in the Hindi medium school in the middle of nowhere in India. After that, whatever I've done is by self-study. Okay. So I'm a self-taught. I give exams just to, to prove to the world and myself that I, I know this stuff, but it's all self-study. The reason I entered the finance industry is also that the lack of money. So I chose to be in finance, unlike a lot of other people I meet who kind of fell into it. I really needed to understand why my dad had made lots of money and then lost it all. So it's like, okay, I need to know this stuff. And ironically, as, as we will discuss later in the show, I did the same mistakes he did, <laughs> not having learned anything. Anyway, so that's that. And then I left India and built my career in Australia, having arrived there with nothing. And then I was a waitress and worked my way, paid my way to earn the diploma. I got a job, did really well, actually. And now, and then ran Asia Pacific. And, and now I'm back in India. So... My family is still in Australia, but I'm in India. So yeah, I've, tr I've lived around. I was thinking about calling you a self-study sister. <laughs> because <laughs> the, C because the CFA is self-study too. 
It is, it is. And interestingly, you say sister, because my brother, who will kill me for saying this, but he wasn't very good at studies. So to help him study is, I had to, my father in, encouraged me to study with him just to help him study. And that made me jump two years because he was two years older than me. And he was studied for, studying for the 10th and I was studying for the eighth grade. And I ended up giving the 10th grade exam. That's how I got into self-study mode and never looked back. So well, yeah. We didn't, we didn't all have a sister like that. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, all right. Yeah. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. So I arrived in Australia as a 21-year-old, built my career up, found this guy in my CFA, not my CFA, my diploma class, grad diploma class, first class, first session, I met this guy who I then dated and ended up marrying. And uh, he was a chartered accountant and he was also studying in finance, obviously very smart guy. I'm giving you this background because he was a really smart guy, right? Anyway, we got married uh, in 2000 and just around that time, he lost his job as a financial auditor and I encouraged him to do something really new and he liked what I did and he became, he joined my company as a joint venture. So he formed a joint venture with my company and um, started researching tax effective schemes you know what they are you know like those uh, there were there were quite a few different ones but eventually most of them settled around agriculture in australia right so he started researching them for my company and we became well known in the industry as the smartest and the best written research reports on agribusiness tax effective schemes and these are ones that you get a tax deduction for planting these trees whether they're orchards or vineyards or uh, what do you call them the, the the tall trees that become pulp i have a mental blank right oh, now. oh yeah i can't remember now anyway, yep so they, they they basically so these are these are not exotic things these are things that are very well known all the exotic ones we weeded out anyways he became well known in the industry and uh then eventually I left that company and joined Mercer and uh, I convinced Mercer to hire him as a consultant to research the asset class for Mercer globally. Okay. So here we are writing reports on agriculture or agribusiness as an asset class. Okay. And if you look back and you search Mercer's archives, you'll find them. So here we go convince pension funds on investing into agribusiness. All the, my boss and my colleagues and all of them start investing in this. So that's the lead up to it. Now, around that time, also we come across this book by Richard Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Okay? And remember, both of us are finance professionals. We read this book and we quite like the idea of what he had said about passive investments and income streams and build passive income streams and all that. And we were obviously still newly married and we were talking about starting a family. And I told him, look, I own as much as you do. So if I take time off, you have to provide for me. And I will never ask you for a single dollar. You have to just put some money aside. We have to put some money aside so that we have enough while I take a couple of years out. And he said, yeah, sure. So he convinced me to invest all of our life savings until then. Remember, we are self-made people. I was self-made. He was actually coming from a rich family. Anyway, reasonably rich, but he left all that inheritance behind to marry me. Okay. So we decided we will not take any money from his parents. So both of us have a putting money aside and we put all our life savings until then into a few agribusiness schemes, the top rated ones that we had recommended to all our 
clients. So there was these trees in Tasmania, which had an off-take agreement with with um, a paper pulp factory, Guns. The, it's called Guns. The, the listed company was called Guns. And we had orchards, grapes, and we had a, st- a stone fruit, and we had a big chunk we put into a unit trust in the Barossa Valley for red wine vineyards. Okay, and that the vineyards doubled in value within 12 months. So we were riding high and we kept taking all our money and putting them back into these schemes because the yield was running at 15% or I was going to. Okay, some of them, the, the vineyard was running 15% and the others were going to give me also a pretty high return. So we put all our investments into that, thinking there for the short term. Only the trees were going to be 10 years and the rest we thought would be relatively quickly within five years, giving us a running yield of that 15, 18%. Okay, so that's what we did. Mm. Guess what happened? (laughs) You know what it's coming, right? All of it pretty much got wiped out. Combination of weather, so hailstorms, currency, we just, for summary, I can't remember the details now, but basically all the off-tick agreements that we had, guns had an environmental lobby problem and their factory never made it. So that collapsed. So basically all three investments had some issue or the other, and all three basically went down to zero. And, and because they were unlisted investments, we couldn't get our money out. So that was the end of my childcare plans, actually. <laughs> and that meant, I mean, obviously, that the, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that, that was that. I want to ask a few questions before I get into what you learned from the experience. But I would mm-hmm. like to just understand because for, for listeners who are investing, I mean, what, what we learn about is investing is it, it has an impact on your family. And whether you are actually investing together with your family or with your husband or whatever, or whether you're not, and you're, let's say your wife doesn't know anything of what you're doing, if you're doing a really poor job of it, she's eventually going to, you know, probably suffer from it. And, um, or if you're a, a woman that's managing the money, same thing. My, my question to you is just tell us a little bit about the emotion between you and your husband as you were going through this. And how did you manage to keep the relationship strong? Because a lot of times going through financial crisis can tear people apart. Yeah. So the, the irony is that we were both well-trained analysts. We were finance people. We knew what we were doing. All of that was fine. And yet we forgot a couple of things. One is, yeah, that, that what we are preaching is, applies to us as well. Emotionally, we were, we were okay, actually. I think I look back and I kick myself. I can't blame him. I really can't. I was a well-trained analyst and I let someone convince me to give up what I was preaching to other people, which is diversification. So okay. I really don't blame him for that. So emotionally, it puts stress not because finances. We were both earning well anyway, so it didn't really affect our lifestyle as much. And I'm sounding pretty unemotional right now, but basically it did put a stress in our marriage, not because I blamed him, but because we couldn't have the kids we had, were planning to, because he kept then putting off kids, having kids. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't have the finances ready, he said, oh, next year, next year, next year. And we didn't end up ever having, having the kids that we wanted to. And now it's too late. 
Okay, got it. So and that, that put stress, and that basically put, I mean, I'm sharing private details here, but that basically, so not the finances, but the fact that we didn't have kids is what eventually did bring us, bring our marriage down. Mm. Okay, so that's a pretty intense outcome of my worst investment ever. Is. Yes. Now, tell us, what lessons did you learn? Oh, like I said, diversification was the first one. So the, I think there was nothing wrong with investing in those things. Uh, plenty of other people did, and yes, they lost their money too. Uh, but for them, it was to the 2 to 5%, no more than maybe 10% of their portfolio, not counting residential assets and th things like that. So it, for everybody else that we advised through our Mercer and previous company, Van Eyck, it was hopefully a very small part of their portfolio, including my own family's. My own family put money in, but yeah, no more than 5%. We thought we were smarter than everybody else and thought we could control, we could manage the risk and we put all our money uh, then into it. So diversification is what we forgot. We also thought the, the behavioral finance learning that because just because we were researching it, somehow that made it better. The overconfidence is something that I, again, was studying behavioral finance and didn't apply it to myself. Third, it's, uh, we forgot it's an unlisted asset. So in, with listed assets, with listed equities or debt or mutual funds, it's one thing. We were putting our money into an alternative asset class, which is agribusiness, which is private equity, basically. And doesn't matter how much you monitor after the event. It doesn't matter really doesn't matter, but basically it, things can go wrong and there's nothing you can do about it. As soon as you put your money in, your money is tied up. So we never got that money back. Got it. So let me uh, summarize what I take away from it. And um, I wrote down most of what you've already said is kind of the one thing is the concept of home country bias or how we are biased to do the things that we know best or that are closest to us. And so that's one of the things that comes out of it. This is an interesting one because there's six common mistakes that I hear on the show. And the most common one is number one is fail to do their own research. But that clearly wasn't the case. You had done plenty of research. But it was number two, which is the second most common, which is fail to properly assess and manage risk. Now, in the assessment of risk, as you say, you know, you knew that um, there were risks involved with this alternative asset. It's more about managing risk. And that really comes down to sizing your position. Because if you size your position small enough, particularly in the beginning as you're building that position, but relative to all your other assets, even illiquidity, you know, as you mentioned, it's not necessarily a liquid, liquid asset. Even illiquidity you can kind of live with if, if it's going to come back you know, or if you can eventually exit. But if you don't size your position, then, you know, you're, you're pretty much dead. And so that's, that's what I would take away from it. And uh, is there anything you'd add to that? Um, no, I think that's it. I think on the risks, by the way, just one thing I'd, I would add, and this is a learning for me. Every time when I see an analyst or a researcher talking about risks, they end up listing the risks that uh, have occurred in the past. Okay. What, what we don't see coming as analysts is things that we have never seen before because we didn't look far enough, far back enough. So the climate that happened, it was a drought, three consecutive season, I think, from memory. It was a two or three, I can't remember now exactly, but it was three consecutive ones that the, the weather was really bad. 
And my husband at the time, he kept telling me that has never happened before. Like never. He, I, I had looked through hundred years worth of weather history and it has never happened before. So what I'm saying is he only looked back hundred years. The earth has been longer around longer, right? Just because we didn't have data doesn't mean it never happened. What it taught me was a newfound respect for history. I had not studied, I used to hate history. I was a good student. I was telling you that earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to love logic, but I never really appreciated history at all because it made me memorize dates and things. What I look back now and say, you know what? History is the best lesson, one of the best things you can study. But also Peter Bernstein's Against the Gods, The Management of Risk, like mm. it's never what you expect. You always get blindsided. Yes, I have it on my shelf too. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's one that I want to reread every few years. But yeah, so it's the risks assessment is never what you think. So managing risk, as you said, was important and mm. sizing it was the, the biggest lesson. And we thought we were knowing we knew. Yeah. So yeah, I think what you've summarized and what I've summarized is is pretty much it, actually. Yeah, and I like that about risk, and it's a good reminder. And not exhausting. And, and just, just one more thing. And people listening might say, oh, how stupid were you? These are exotic investments. No, they were not. They were, we had done a whole asset class study about how food is one of the most, I mean, it's needed, right? Water scarcity is a big thing. So we studied it as a professional analyst. This was not exotic emu farms or things like that. This was stuff that was in abundance, was food that was needed. Australia was a huge wine exporting country. So this was like really well-defined things, not exotic investments. And yet we, we just, mis just mis completely misanalyzed it. I was going to say about the risk thing, you know, a lot of times when you read an analyst report, um, they like, or let's say someone's pitching a startup, they're like, okay, here are the risks. Risk number one, you know, X, Y, Z. But, but, you know, we're protecting from that risk by this. Risk number two. Yeah. But, you know, and people like to think that just doing a simple analysis, listing out risks and saying this is a way that we're dealing with it means that you're not exposed to risk. But I think what I learned many years ago was the concept of the random nature of outcomes and understanding probability means that there is a probability of an extreme outcome. And for those people uh, who are listening, who are thinking, well, how the heck do I plan? If I, if I was to build a plan for extreme outcomes, it would mean it would just be an unrealistic plan because extreme outcomes don't always happen. And I can't even predict what they would be. But one of the ideas for handling that type of thing is to say, okay, I don't know why or how it would happen, but the ultimate result would be that the price would fall. Therefore, if I bought it at 100 and the price fell to some point, would there be a point where I would say, I'm going to get out of this? And for most long-only type of investors, it just goes against their grain. But I would argue that a stock loss or some type of pre-planning or pre-thinking of a stock fall or, or price fall of what you bought uh, is one way to try to handle an extreme risk without building some kind of plan around it actually happening. So, all right. Well, listen, now let's wrap this up based on what you learn from this story and what you continue to learn what one action would you recommend our, our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? So interestingly, I've learned a lot from this, obviously, and using my finance background. And so basically, I kind of had a midlife crisis after all of this and quit corporate life. 
came to India and decided to take some time out. And I've kind of only just coming out of it. And I've now decided to share not just my personal mistakes, but also whatever I've learned in finance for the lay investor. So this blog that I, that you mentioned in the introduction, The Money Hunts, which is me basically. Mm. Hans in Sanskrit means swan. So I'm the money swan. <laughs> and I kind of remind people there's the white swan, there's a black swan, and then there's the money swan. So I'm trying to now build a career out of teaching people what I learned from my own mistakes and my finance training. So what I've come up with is, and I think finance professionals make it too complicated by talking about asset allocation and, and all of these jargon things that the layperson doesn't understand. So I've developed a concept called the money house, which is divide your overall wealth into three buckets. And the fourth one gets added later in life. So build a foundation, which is stuff you cannot afford to lose. Build growth pillars, which things are, that keep growing and long-term are blue chip assets. They're, that's blue in color. So red is, foundation is red. Don't touch this. Cannot afford to lose it. The pillars being blue and long-term like equity, retirement and so on. And then the concept of a fun roof, which is basically things that you should be able to walk away from. Things that if they pay off, they put you into next strata of society. But if they don't pay off, you walk away. Now you decide, gut instinct, how much in each you want to put based on what you're worth. If you're worth $100, do you want to put 40 in foundation and 30 in pillars and the rest in fun roof or only 10% or 5%, whatever you're comfortable with, because this is stuff you should be walk, able to walk away from. So what I'm saying is I've turned my, I've turned my life worst investment mistake and my training of behavioral finance and normal finance into a blog and a concept that I now use to train other people. Fantastic. And that's called Money House? Is that what you the said? The concept is called Money House. Got yes. It. The and Money House. Have, so it's, up, it's on my site. The Money Hunts. Okay. And I'm going to put all that in the show notes so listeners can go to the show notes, click on the link, and then you'll be able to get there. All right. Fantastic. So last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My 289,000 followers, I want to turn them into a million because I am very, very serious about now spreading the message of financial education. I think like you, uh, financial education is underpins a lot of everything else you want to achieve, right? Everything you want to achieve needs money. Um, so I think money education is the most important thing. It doesn't have to be boring. It doesn't have to be intimidating, which is what people think it is. So I, my life's mission right now is making it fun. And therefore, I've set myself sort of short-term, medium-term, long-term goals. My short-term goal, which is 12-month goal, is to turn, uh, to turn up in the first page of Google results uh, when people look in for how to start investing and get a million followers. And something tells me you're going to do it. Fantastic. I don't know, but it's a good one. What good one to have a goal, right? You can never get there if you don't have a goal. Absolutely. So. I think it's fantastic. Well, all right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. In addition, if you or someone you know has a story to tell, just click on the social media or me email icon 
of your choice in the upper right-hand corner of myworstinvestment.com, and that will go directly to me. As we end, Hansi, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Use, use common sense and do read a lot. Just read a lot, especially Fantastic. history. Yes, and for those listeners, they can't see, but behind me is a big bookshelf of finance books, and I'm sure that you will see that Hansi also has a big library at home to learn from. So, fantastic. Well, I think we learned a lot from that, in particular, about Money House. Build a strong foundation, have your growth pillars, and have a fun roof. Well done. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.